All right, everyone else, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We'll be in verses 46 through 50. So this year, we've said that kind of a big theme for our church is we wanted to grow in being a family of families. So this is a really important Sunday. Uh, and of course, the next couple of weeks will be as well as we move into focusing on the death and resurrection of Christ in view of Easter. But I am like super, you're not supposed to say this, so breaking the rules as a speaker. I'm like super nervous about this text because it can go in a lot of wrong ways. And we'll come back around to that in a minute. But we see here in these chapters, again, how Jesus challenges our expectations about what it means for him to be king and what it means for us to follow him as his people. And so if you have a Bible, you can read along, you can read on the screen. In many ways, I thought it might just be good to just read this text and then let everybody just sit with it. (laughs) But I'm going to preach on it and we're going to pray that what is true will be used by God. And if something is not true, that the Spirit will help you discern that as well and lead you into that truth. So Matthew 12, 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? We'll just go ahead and get this out of the way. If you're wondering where verse 47 is in your text, it's basically just a repeat of verse 46. It just, if you have it in your bottom notes, it says, Some manuscripts add, and they came and asked, told him. So, you can, we can debate manuscripts later, but I just wanted, I don't want you to think, why is there not a verse there? So anyway, that's why. Verse 48, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Father, we ask you now to help us to be present before your presence. We thank you for the worship that we've already got to participate in as we've sang about your glory and came to you with our sins and our sufferings and been assured that you have taken our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. And so now we ask that you would help us to listen as those who are already covered in the finished work of Christ. We pray that you would help us to listen as those who are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live all that you command. We pray that you would help us to listen with trust that your truth, however hard or helpful it may seem, is truth that comes to set us free. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. I never thought that I'd be sitting down with my in-laws trying to convince them that I was not taking our family to join a cult. So, if you don't know, the first time that we've been accused of being a part of a cult was not describing our church now. And not to startle anyone, but that does happen sometimes. Some of you have came to me and said, hey, I heard this church was a cult. And and it always confuses me because even if you're new this morning, you're probably like, hey, this church actually seems like maybe (laughs) hyper-traditional In some ways, we got folks reading stuff. We got, uh, we're going to take communion every week. But I know why it's the case. And a big reason that can be the case is because we so emphasize the identity we have as the family of God. It's because we take seriously what we read in this text 
that church is more than just what happens in a building. It's more than what just takes place through programs. It's more than just be centered around certain personalities. And it's more than just completing projects. But yet I have heard homeless people warning each other, be careful. They have these groups. I'm not making this up. Another has said to me, I was, I was really nervous about what y'all were doing because I noticed y'all like in these parts and in one another's homes and you invite strangers in to eat meals with you. And as we began this journey to kind of reverse again is we ha- when you read the book of Acts, you see a church that is living like family. And it seems odd that when you would actually want to take that seriously, that people would get nervous. And it's why I think it's important for us to take scriptures like this seriously. Because it's got to the point that where you actually open up your lives to one another and to those who have yet to be a part of the family of God, if that makes the American church nervous, then that means we need to rediscover what it actually means to be the church. There's so many people, and I think all of us at some times, I know myself, who really don't know how to respond to the fact that Jesus defines the church as a family in a way that actually changes how you live that actually speaks into your schedule, to your holidays, to your birthday parties. I mean, that's scary, isn't it? There may not be many countercultural texts as powerful as this one, particularly in the Southern religious culture. Where Jesus is saying, and we're going to get to this, that the nuclear biological family is not ultimate. Scary. Why? We live in such an individualistic culture. We want to organize church as family. We know we have to call it that, right? I mean, the Bible's just too clear. But now we got to figure out how to organize it so it doesn't interfere with our real families. And then also, we're so inept at relationships, we just have to admit, like, there's been a lot of discipleship in churches about learning stuff, but actually living together is really hard. And so we know, like, well, already things are so messy at home. Why in the world would I want to invite other people into that? And so when the church does live as family, there's often this degree of just phoniness that comes along with it because it's like there's how real families are and then there's how the church family is. And then others of us have tried to take it seriously and it was seriously hard. And I'll be honest with you, there's not many weeks that don't go by that I say, you know, there's other ways to do this. Why are we doing this? And again, some are super offended to be challenged on this or even to hear Jesus on this because it does sound like a super culty kind of thing, doesn't it? And it can be taken to an exaggerated extreme. It can sound like a a power play from a culty type of church leader, right? And it has been used that way. 
One person said, when training people to recognize cults, one of the first details explained is that a cult typically tries to isolate people from their families. A group that tells new adherents to cut off contact with their father or mother or siblings is usually out to do harm, and it is. We're going to talk about how that's not what we're doing. But the guy who speaks in this text, Jesus, is the guy who went to Peter and a James and John and said, follow me. And they laid down their nets and left the family business and went after Jesus. The whole story of God is a story of both the gift and the mess of family, the redemption and the restoration of families and the family of God. We are all people in temporal families and homes or households and Whether you're in one now, you're from one. But we're also all people in a spiritual family. Through union with Christ, we become brothers and sisters. And our families of origin and the family that we're a part of in Christ are not meant to compete with one another. They're meant to complement one another. But this only works if we're discipled by Jesus into what this way looks like. And so we must let him disciple us into what it means to be a family of families. And as a church, we must grow into that identity of a family of families. How do we do this? This, this, this sermon this morning will go a little more in topical directions, but I'm doing my best to honor all of God's word and to honor all of our stories. But the first thing we see here is we honor this by the exposure we see in the text of the assumption that the nuclear family is ultimate. You may have not heard that term nuclear family. You might think, yeah, my family gets pretty nuclear sometimes. But anyway, which is true. A lot of explosions in our house, right, boys? Who knows what mom and dad will throw this week. But the textbook definition of nuclear family is a couple and their dependent children. So that's Wikipedia or Google popped up first. Notice in this text, verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, so we know Jesus is teaching. He's already been accused of being like demon-possessed at this point. He's challenging the religious leaders. And it says, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So if you don't know, Jesus had an earthly mama, Mary. You might know that. But Jesus also had these brothers, and we might think of them as half-brothers. But Joseph and Mary had other kids. Mary was not a perpetual virgin, if you've been told that. The Bible says this very clearly in more than one place. But we see here Jesus' nuclear family shows up. And they're like, we need to talk to you. And then if you add that verse 47 in there, we're just doubling up on that, sending somebody to get you. Now, again, to underline the fact Mary's here. If anybody's mama should get priority, it's probably Mary. Right? Why would this assumption be here that the nuclear family is ultimate? It's because everybody would have thought that. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, even more than in 21st century American Tennessee, the family would have been thought of culturally as even a more important unit. I mean, they lived at home, but they also usually worked at home. Your your profession that you would have in your job would not be something like, you know, I'm going to go off to college and see what I want to be when I grow up. No, you were born and you kind of said, okay, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. 
There was an identity, a history, a heritage, and a, and a great shame of anything that would come in contrast with that. We think of Israel's history rooted in the Scriptures. Adam and Eve. This foundational building block of civilization through the institution of marriage and family that it will flow. We think of Abraham. Abraham is called out. And what is the great promise? You'll have a family. A nuclear family, a family, you'll have a child, and through this child, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We think of the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 6, the great possession of the truths of God. How is that going to be handed down? It is first and primarily going to be handed down at home. As fathers and mothers teach their children and train them in the way. We taught on Psalm 78 a few weeks ago. We have an obligation to pass the truth of the gospel down to the next generation. And the church partners together with that, but families are to take that with the greatest importance. And we could go into these other covenants, like the Davidic covenant, where there's the promise that the whole world's going to be redeemed because there's going to be families, but there's going to be children born. But it's not just that story. Why else do we just seem to assume the ultimacy of the nuclear families, Jesus' own teachings. You know, some people wrongly say that Jesus has nothing to say about marriage. Well, if you go to Matthew 19, we see Jesus just quotes Genesis directly about a man and a woman who will come together and become one flesh. Jesus is not speaking in contradiction to the beauty and the blessing of marriage. If you go to Matthew 19... Later in that same text, when Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler, one of the things he says is, honor your mother and your father. And in Matthew 15, Jesus actually confronts the Pharisees because they are using their traditions and their place as spiritual leaders to not have to love their own homes well, to not have to take care of their biological parents. Jesus is saying, how dare you twist the truth of God is in such a way that you don't have to love your families. In Jesus' example, this is important to lay out before we get to the other part. In Jesus' example, in Luke chapter 2, we see as a child, Jesus leaves from his nuclear family, Mary and Joseph. He goes to the temple and they can't find him, and he says, well, I had to be about my father's business. But then it says he goes with them, and he submits to them. He doesn't just say, forget y'all, I got more important things to do. In John 2, the first miracle that Jesus performs, guess, who he, guess whose prompting it is that he performs that for? His mama? Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. So although he says, come and follow me, leave the family business, he's circling back around and saying, I even love mother-in-laws. He says, let the little children come to me. And then while Jesus in John 19 is hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, he looks down and sees his mama. And he says, John, make sure you take care of her. In the rest of the New Testament, we see in Ephesians 5 and 6 
that a correct vision of the church is a vision that honors and sees the place of, of homes and families, where marriages are designed as a picture of Christ in the church, where children are raised at home in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We see Paul celebrating the fact that it was Timothy's mother and grandmother that led him to faith. We see when it's talking about the life of the church that people who want to get super spiritual and not care for their families, Paul says, you are worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your own household. If you want to be an elder or a deacon in the church, it's asked, how are you managing your household? And widows, if you go and read how they're first to be cared for, Paul even goes as far as to say through the Spirit, before the church cares for widows, you, sh you should get their own children and grandchildren to care for them. So we need to say this assumption that they come to with Jesus, it's not totally off base. The biological, the nuclear, the adopted, whatever you call it, natural family is a beautiful blessing from God. I remember the first time, I had never witnessed this, but I had some friends in college, and I went over to their house, and it was getting late at night, and the, the dad said, hey, uh, come on in here. You know, it's always kind of, at least for me, a little awkward when you're being around other your friends' parents for the first time. Well, we go into their living room, and we all sit down, you know, it's still kind of weird. And one of my friends says, who would like to pray for us as we get started? And I'm like, what's happening here? And all of a sudden, this dad and this mom, and they're, they were a little younger than me, junior and senior kids in high school, begin to read God's Word together and share about their lives together, and pray together. And I love my family, but I'd never experienced that. It was a beautiful thing. There was a love there that I saw. That the home should be a place where we daily or continually find love, security, forgiveness, peace, and patience, and ultimately Jesus. So as we hear in this text, the first thing we need to know is we do not need to diminish the beauty and the blessing of the home. It would be a misreading of this text, and I believe a misreading of Jesus and the fulfillment of all the scriptures to make that the application. Some people... The enemy likes to take us off course wherever they can. Could hear this text and say, whew, I don't have to love my family at home anymore. You have children in your home, we and I do as well. We have a stewardship of a season in their lives to love them and lead them in the way of Christ. We cannot cannot outsource this to coaches, to churches, to schools, to computers, or to careers. In your home, if you were married, you have spouses. And that spouse is not given there to be your roommate that helps you pay the bills, but someone to love in the name of Christ. If you are a child and you are in a family, then you have parents to honor and to love and to forgive 
and to grow with in the ways of Christ. The world wants to diminish the home. The world would tell us that the home, the family, the nuclear, the natural family, however you want to call it, is an oppressive, patriarchal, social construct that is set against all of our freedoms. And yet it is that very lie that will bind us from the bedrock of human flourishing that God wants us to experience through a love that is there. So I want to say this before we get to the next point. There should be no guilt, shame, or fear over being a family and having a home and loving it well. I want you to imagine a missional church that highly values family, like we're going to get to here in point two. But I want you to imagine, like I had to imagine as I just prayed and poured, poured over this, a family sitting here this morning, it's about to hear what we're going to hear, but they have a child with special needs. And some days loving that child takes everything they have. And I believe the last thing Jesus would want them to hear is, you're making an idol of your child. There's marriages that are on the brink of falling apart. And the last thing I think Jesus wants you to hear is, quit, quit focusing on trying to restore your marriage. There's parenting situations going on that are difficult and tough and seasons of life. And they need to be honored, not condescended upon. We need to define family as God defines it through the Scriptures. We need to live into it. We need to encourage it. We need to disciple it. We need to support it. And we need to understand the stories that we all bring because of our family of origins, whether you're single Senior, widowed, divorced, a student, or a child. So let's not diminish what the Scriptures make clear. But let's expose in all that. This is why, how we get to the point, though, to where we just live with the assumption that those families are ultimate. So I hope you've seen they're very important. But Jesus does not embrace the assumption that they are ultimate. He leads us in the assumption that the, the family of disciples is where we find our ultimate identity as family. Verse 48 again, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said to them, here are my mother and my brothers. This is amazing because Jesus does not say both and. I like a good both and. But he doesn't say that. Because this is not an issue of balance. If we've read what else Jesus has said in the Scriptures, He's already said, whoever does not love me more than mother, father, daughter, or son is not worthy to be my disciple in chapter 10. He's the one who says, hey, Jesus, I, gotta, I, gotta, I want to follow you, but you know, my, my father might die soon, and I want to be here to bury him. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. So, 
we're, we're talking about this in a way that might lead you to the word balance, but, I, but what I want us to hear is what we're not talking about is balance. We're talking about submitting all of our lives to the lordship of Jesus. We're not saying disregard the importance of loving our homes well, but we're saying what does it look like to love those homes well where Jesus is Lord? Not where mama's Lord, not where daddy's Lord, and not where our kids are Lord. This would have been a huge challenge in Israel too because most of them would have thought, I'm just born into the kingdom of God because I'm an Israelite. And so Jesus is also making this point, no! Even if you are so born into the kingdom of God that you're married, you still are not a natural part of the family of God. This would have been a huge challenge to the Pharisees who would have looked upon some people as outcasts by birth. You're a Gentile, you're out. You're not a part of the family. You're born with some type of defect. Well, it was probably because of some sin in your life or your family of origin. Go read John 9 if you don't believe me on that. And Jesus is saying here, that's not what makes you family. There is no biological succession in the kingdom of God. Jesus will love his biological mama to the death. But notice he's going to call one of these disciples to be the one who takes care of her. Because his view of family is bigger than biology. And he defines what a disciple is. He says in verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is amazing. In the, the, we know in the Gospels, if you read them, who does the will of the Father? The will of the Father, 1 John 3.23 says, This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we love one another. So what does it mean to do the will of the Father that makes you family? It means to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And to trust Him as Lord. Son of God is not an idea to believe in. It is a person that we're called to follow. It's a repentance that follows from that faith that leads into an obedience where we love one another as a family with a mission. It's also amazing here. I know I'm scruffling around a little bit. Someone change this. If our technology... Isn't impressing you yet. Notice this nice piece of tape Jose fixed for my microphone. And I can say that. Why? Because we're family. <laughs> this is not a performance. Right? I really don't have to be worried. Right? If somebody leaves because the microphone didn't work well, you're in the wrong church. <laughs> I don't mean that rudely either. But what's really cool is, notice Jesus here also says, this person is my brother, they're my, my brother, my sister, my mother. Notice in this family, there is, there is no male nor female, Jew nor Greek. Is we're all Jesus' family. 
His disciples here would have not likely just been the 12 most commentators. We know the 12 apostles are all male, but Jesus had this extended band of disciples that many women were a part of. Many, some who, even if you go into the book of Luke, were actually doing most of the financial supporting of the whole thing. And ultimately will report His resurrection to the twelve. As we go through all of the Bible, we see really from the very beginning, although the, the home, the nuclear family is honored, it was never meant to be the end all be all. Adam and Eve, why, why are they to be a family so they'll have children? For what purpose? To fill all the earth with more families that love each other and live for the glory of God. Why is Abraham to have a family? So that it'll be a family of families that is a part of all the families of the earth. Why is David to be born? So a kingdom will come that will bring justice to Israel and justice to the nations. There's some 277 references to family in terms of the church in Paul's letters. Brother is used 139 times. Father 63 times, inheritance 19 times, son 17 times, children 39 times. This closeness and intimacy that comes through our union with Christ is not a side note. It's centered on what it means for us to be the people of God. Jesus is saying to be my disciples is to see yourself as a part of a family. In all of eternity, we will live as family. We love our, our spouses, those of us who are married, but Jesus says there'll be no marriage. Why? Because the point of marriage, Paul says in Ephesians 5, was it was to point to Christ in the church. Family's not less important if we hear what Jesus is saying. It's more important because it's pointing us to bigger things. To a, to a bigger and better and broader table where everyone is welcome who comes to Christ through faith. Jesus challenges our, our classic chart of Jesus, home, church, world. And I think one of the reasons, ways He challenges it is He doesn't play that game. This isn't about ranking. It's about a relationship with Him that we lead everyone that we love into, but also so that no one is left out. This really is good news this morning. And if it's not good news to you, it's good news to a lot of people because there's a lot of people who don't have a family There's a lot of people who hear the word family and it's a bad word, right? Do you know what I went through in my family of origin growing up, they would say. You had me to a family. There's a lot of people who would hear what Jesus is saying here and their gut reaction is like, oh man, are you telling me I need to have somebody over for a meal instead of watching my show? or signing my kids up for another sport. That's not Jesus' point. 
Jesus is talking about seeing ourselves not with this narcissistic, idolatrous self-centeredness that never has time to love people beyond those whom we wake up with. I love that in our church we've got to experience over and over again the beauty of being a big family. We got to experience the mess a lot too, but you know, without the mess, you don't get the, the redemption. Again, this Wednesday night, here we are celebrating, where's he at? Oh, Daniel's birthday party. Hello, Daniel. That was Daniel's birthday party. Our kids are blessed. They're going to have grandparents. They're going to have lots of people. They're going to have too much of a birthday party. But Daniel got a birthday party because he's part of the family. Now, he aggravates the heck out of us, doesn't he, boys? Right, Daniel? You know, we can say that out loud. We aggravate him too. Elisha and Daniel fight, right? But who doesn't fight with Elisha? I love you, son. (laughs) Daniel says Cassie's meatloaf's too dry after she slaves over it. But you know what? Daniel helps me mow. And Daniel reminds me that life's okay. What can faze him? I wish something would sometimes. Frank, who we need to pray for. I don't know where he went. He's probably around here somewhere. There he is. Frank's just been diagnosed with stage 2 liver cancer. But Frank, you're a family. We love you. And I hope sometimes. Frank can aggravate a little too. We all can. Frank's daughter Mary calls me the other day telling me this, and she said, I, and Frank's daughter's not a believer, and said, I just want to let you know I'm thankful that Daddy doesn't have to go through this alone. Now you may think showing up to a family meal is checking off a box, and it can be. But it can be providing a space where somebody has a seat at a table that isn't going to have somebody to listen to them, to love them, and to pray over them, and to care for them. Churches are good at hosting Bible studies. And that's, we do that too, but what if Jesus is wanting us to see ourselves as a part of a bigger belonging? At our, we have a, a group in our church where the leaders get together, leadership collective. So if you lead in an MC or a fight club or some way in our church or an apprentice as we come together and once a month and we just try to encourage each other to not be hypocrites and actually live out what we're trying to hope our church would live out. And this Friday night, wouldn't you know it, my dear sweet wife, we're talking about hurt and then just in front of everybody she says... Did you slam the door when you got out? Now, I'd already lied and said I didn't. But uh, I didn't even know I was lying. That's how weird I guess I am. 
Because she said something on the way there that hurt my feelings. And I, did, and I have to go in here and do something important. I'm going to lead people. You should be nice to me and treat me special. Don't you know how important this is? Well, we're talking about hurt and how we respond to it, Rog. And so right there in front of everybody, Tim said, go get popcorn, is is this culture, though, to where we could do that and where I didn't feel like an idiot. I've shared about my marriage in other church contexts before, and it's like crickets. Well, we'll pray for you. Next. That only happens if we see our family is bigger than our family. You know what I mean? Like the drama in the car in a safe place became everybody help us, pray for us. It's embarrassing a little bit. But it's what I need. The context of what Jesus is saying here is this context of discipleship where you lose your life so that you may gain it. Where you die so that you may live. Where your nuclear family is crucified to Christ so that it might therefore live. Where family idolatry and family narcissism. Or some of you who aren't in families and you, you idolatrize it just as much. You envy it. You think, if I just had this relationship, if I could just get married, if I just had kids... Jesus wants to show us that He brings us into something better. And we do this not by diminishing the importance of our homes. We do this not by eliminating all boundaries. I mean, if you think about it, even in healthy families, you have boundaries. Right? These children are my kids in my nuclear family. I don't want them sleeping in the bed with me and my wife. So viewing the church as family isn't just like, hey, y'all just come on whenever you want to. That's that's not even normal. That's that's a bad application of this. That'll kill you. I love my dad and my brother. I don't want them showing up at 4 o'clock in the morning and saying, are you ready to go cut wood? Reminds me of growing up. But we're family. We know that we have access to one another. We know that we have support to one another. We know that we are there for one another. And Jesus is saying, this is how we need to live into our lives together as the family of God. So it's not by diminishing, it's not by no boundaries, and it's not by legalism. Jesus here is speaking into a context that's one of persecution. Right? Jesus is not here saying like, I hope nobody out here takes their family camping on Sunday morning. That's, that's just weird legalism, right? What, what Jesus is saying here, these are people who if I, if I follow you, I may be crucified. It's going to cost them dearly, and at times in our life it may cost us. And this is what we have to do. We have to live into this tension. 
But attention where Jesus is Lord and not where he gets the leftovers of our nuclear family. He is our identity. He is our priority. And he is our opportunity. There's many singles in our church who probably would love a home-cooked meal. And if you can do that, do it. There's families in our church who need singles to help them. Watch kids. Have a date night. See that someone still is dreaming about life. (laughs) There's people in our church with same-sex attraction who are seeking to live faithful lives of following Christ. And they don't need to hear over and over again that as if the pinnacle of life is that you get married and have kids. Because the pinnacle of life is following Jesus. There's marriages in here who are struggling. There's people in here who are divorced. There's people with fertility issues who got married and they can't have children. There's students and singles from broken homes and people who are married, all of the above. This is messy. If we make an idol of the nuclear natural family, then the gospel gets diminished. But we can use that good gift of God to actually open up more spaces for people to experience family. If we don't just isolate ourselves off in a corner and do our own thing. I love it, and we can't always do it, but I love it when another family in our missional community invites us to go watch their kids' sports. It's hard to figure all this stuff out with how busy we are. But guess what? You can bring somebody along with you. I'm not good at that, because if I go to a game, I want to watch a game. But anyway, that's my issues. That's probably how I need to be challenged by this. But so much could be said, and we're going to come now to the Lord's table. So here, here we are. This is, our, this is our climax, coming to the table. So here we go. How do we do this? I failed at this so many times. We have to realize we cannot do this through our own intellect, through our own will, or through our own emotional stability. You'll never try this if it depends on all these things. If you're waiting for the perfect season of your life, or you're the perfect person who has the perfect family, or the perfect orientation around life, it's not going to happen. The only way that we can do this is with Jesus' death and resurrection, His finished work, just seeing it covering all over us. To invite you into my home and to dare to read the Bible while me and my wife just had a fight. How do we do that? We do that because we know that Jesus has already paid for our sins. We can be family if we really believe we have nothing to prove to each other. We got nothing to hide. Step into the mess, the literal messes, the physical messes. Invite yourself into someone's life. Take that risk. Let them know, hey, I'm lonely. I'd like for somebody to spend some time with me. 
How can you do that? How can you have that courage? Because you know how deeply Jesus loves you. How deeply seen you are by Him. How deeply saved you are by Him. It's so relevant to me even to try to teach on something that to me seems so tricky like this. Is As I'm preparing this, I'm so afraid of sounding legalistic. And I'm emailing pastors, I'm emailing psychologists, like I don't want to, I don't want to go the wrong way on this. Someone said, make sure you preach it with a prophetic edge. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know? And then somebody else is saying, make sure you don't exaggerate it so that people don't have healthy boundaries. And it's like, ah. Remember, there's people in your church who have social anxiety issues. It's true. Remember, there's people in your church who have made an idol out of ministry in the church to the hurt of their families. There's a lot of hypocrisy and confusion around this that it would have been easier just to, to make it short and sweet. But I'll say from the start, I am the leader of getting this wrong. So you're, you're not going to do it worse than me, probably. But we have the leader who did it right. Who loved his mama right. And who loved his disciples right. So we can take a deep breath. We're covered. It's okay. Try to fail. And he's risen. He's empowering us to keep going. He's the spotless lamb, the perfect son, the better brother. And he really has made us family. We take this bread and this cup. It's a picture that we are, this is how closely we're bound. We're blood brothers and sisters. That's how deep we're family. We all share the Holy Spirit together. We've all been adopted. Whether you like it or not, the family of disciples is your real family. For Jesus, this wasn't just a metaphor. For Jesus, this is a big part of the meaning of the cross. This is why we do communion together. I'm not saying it's wrong to do it other ways. It's because we share a common union. It's why we're inviting you now to, to come after I pray and to gather around these tables, not as disconnected religious performers, but as people who have been brought into the family of God. And I don't know if that sounds culty or not, but I think it sounds like Jesus. And we must continue to let Him disciple us into being a family of families. Father, we thank You for Your great plan of redemption that You have accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Your Son and are accomplishing in His reign and one day in His return, it will all be finished finally. So as we come to this table now, would you help us to rejoice in your victory for us.
We thank you that there is forgiveness for all the ways that we have neglected our families of origin, our nuclear homes, and all the ways we have idolized it. For all the ways we've neglected our church family and all the ways we've idolized it. Thank you for all of our diminishments and exaggerations. You are our perfect Savior. So may we come now to the table in hope. In Jesus' name.